Our scripture reading today comes from John 15, 18 through 27. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. Uh, what about those Chiefs? Pretty amazing. And those of you who are joining us online, you have to be Kansas City fans. I mean, you know, it's a great time here. But we're really grateful you're here on this holiday weekend, and I hope uh, you sense Christ's presence with us. Well, Kelvin Cochran dedicated over 30 years of his life in fighting fires and protecting the communities in which he loved and which he lived. Kelvin's virtuous character was simply impeccable, his worth ethic beyond question, his leadership effectiveness brilliant. But in January of 2015, he was suddenly fired by Atlanta Mayor Kasim Reed. Why? Because of his Christian faith. Kelvin had expressed his orthodox Christian views on human sexuality and marriage, not on the job, but in a book he had written for his church family. The anti-Christian discrimination, hatred, and bigotry unleashed on him by the city of Atlanta and across the country profoundly impacted his career his reputation, and his family in a nation whose founding documents assert religious freedom for all its citizens. Now, thanks to a strong legal advocacy, Calvin eventually won damages in the discrimination lawsuit. But he lost his job, lost his career. His life was changed forever. Following Jesus proved very costly for Calvin Cochran. But what will following Jesus mean for your life and mine? For one thing, it will mean loving Jesus will entail being hated by others. This is what Jesus tells his closest earthly friends the night before his crucifixion. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of John. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament, chapter 15. Now, in the beginning of chapter 15, the gospel writer captures Jesus' invitation to abiding, that is, to deeper intimacy with himself. 
And then coming to verse 17, Jesus urges his followers to deeply love one another. But beginning in verse 18, through the rest of the chapter, there is an abrupt thematic and tonal change. Jesus gives a heads up to his disciples that they can expect some rough terrain on the road ahead. In our text, I want us to see two timeless truths that emerge for all who follow him in the discipleship journey. First, we will be opposed. Secondly, we will never be alone. This is what Jesus says in our text this morning. Look with me first at verses 18 through 20. Listen carefully. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now remember, the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also, or also keep yours. Now, in this intimate conversation that we've been a part of as a church family across our campuses, Jesus is having a conversation with his closest earthly friends. And notice how he frames the realistic expectations of anyone who follows him and the cost of it. You'll notice something rather unusual. It's a staccato kind of literary repetition here that is stunning in the Gospels. In verses 18 through 19, just two verses. You'll notice that Jesus seesaws back and forth. That's how I would say it between two words. They jump out at you, right? The two words are world and hate. Hate is repeated four times in the first two verses. And world here is repeated five times. So this should alert us to the theme. Jesus wants his disciples to firmly grasp that as his chosen disciples, they will experience hatred from the world. Now, the idea of hate uh, translates across the Greek text to the English text, right? I mean, we, we kind of know what hate is. It's hard to define all the time, but it's easy to discern, right? It can be contempt. It can be violence. It can be hostility. But the idea of world here is really confusing. Uh, and it doesn't exactly go from the original text to the uh, English text. So let me, what does the world mean here? What is Jesus saying? Well, the Greek word is cosmos, and you might hear the idea of the universe, the sky above that we often use in English, a kind of geographical or vast physical space. But Jesus is really not talking about that here. It's a usage in the New Testament, but Jesus' usage is quite different. He describes a moral created order, a spiritually orchestrated counterfeit kingdom that is an active and furious rebellion against God and his rule. Now, if you are newer to the Bible, you might not know this, but if you've read the Bible in the Old Testament, you know that this cosmic rebellion frames the story of the Bible. It is a rebellion against God. It's orchestrated by a fallen angel named Satan, or son of the morning. It began long ago, and it surfaced in the Garden of Eden. This cosmic rebellion brought sin, disintegration, and death into God's good creation. It launched an invisible war, and this is what Jesus is preparing his disciples to live out in, in the world. The world is a comprehensive system, both of thought and influence and power, 
permeating all aspects of human life, culture, and societies that oppose the triune God's will and rule. Jesus says to his disciples here in verse 20, notice it's an imperative, remember, right? Remember what I told you about this, and we know this is true in John 7, verse 7. Jesus said this earlier, the world hates me because I testify about it that its deeds are evil. In other words, Jesus shines the light of truth into our moral depravity, all of us. Jesus reminds his disciples that the opposition from others we will face is first and foremost a hatred toward him. Now keep that in mind in the text. Now many people today, if you ask them about Jesus, what comes into their mind, most of them would say he's a good teacher, or I would say most people across our culture would say, you know, he was a very loving person. And indeed he was. So the question is, why was Jesus, who was so loving, hated by both the religious and non-religious of his day? both by Jerusalem and Rome. Let me suggest a few things why, because it helps us understand this text. First, we know from the Gospels is that Jesus loved the wrong people, especially those deemed by the religious as the pale, the societal outcasts, the tax gatherers, and prostitutes. Okay? He was hated for that. Secondly, he was hated because he made absolute truth claims and claimed exclusivity. Just in John 14, 6, just before this, Jesus says, I am the only way to God, period. I'm the way, the truth, and life, and no one comes to God but by me. That's, that's painfully exclusive. And he was hated for it. Third, Jesus exposed in his teaching and his life the darkness residing in every human heart, your heart and mine. Jesus makes the point in John 3 that people love darkness rather than light because, what? Our deeds are evil. And on the heels of that, fourth, Jesus raised the bar on moral standards. He raised the bar big time. It was a morality we know from the Beatitudes and other teaching, not merely on external behavior or conformity to a standard, but a morality of the heart. And Jesus confronted, first and foremost, and was hated for it, external religious hypocrisy. But let's not miss, in our cultural context, Jesus very specifically raised the bar on marriage and divorce. He raised the bar on sexual purity. He raised the bar on the sanctity of human life, the vulnerable, and particularly the children. Jesus' life and teaching went strictly against the grain of the culture and society of his time. Many first century religious people and non-religious people rejected Jesus and ultimately hated him. Now, this is true and we have to wrestle with it, right? Jesus is saying to his disciples, this is going to be true of you too. So let's scoot from the first century to the 21st century. As 21st century followers of Jesus, Jesus tells us we can expect to be opposed for similar things. For loving and defending the vulnerable against the powerful. For truth proclaimed and truth lived that exposes the human heart's darkness, depravity, yes, and need for forgiveness and a savior. For the truth claims and exclusivity of Jesus that we hold dear 
as the only way to God. And also for our values and moral commitment around God's clear design and desire for caring for the vulnerable, for pursuing justice, for upholding the covenant of marriage, for biblical sexuality, and the sanctity of every human life, unborn and born. Jesus clearly affirmed this. We will be opposed in the 21st century. And this worldly opposition is increasing in frequency and intensity in our historical moment and cultural climate. One of the writers I commend to you is Charles Taylor. Taylor, in his Secular Age, is a brilliant book. He has persuasively argued that in the West, particularly, and in our nation, we are living in an increasingly secular age. Now, one of the strongest researchers here is a Brit. And he's just come out with a wonderful book on Oxford Press, Stephen Bolivant. And uh, it's a book entitled Nonverts, The Making of Ex-Christian America. And he unpacks from empirical research the last two decades, the last decade, the massive rise of the nuns. Now, this is not Catholic devoted ladies, <laughs> okay? This is people who in research declare they have no religious interest or affiliation at all. Okay, so the nuns, that's what they're called. His empirical research backs the incredible rise of secularization in our 21st century culture. He points out the steep rise, and he says, now get this, this is a conservative number. Now there are 59 million and rising nuns in the United States. And he puts it this way as a summary of his research thesis, evaluated by peers in the academy. Very good, very strong stuff. He writes, indeed, if this book contains any sing single summarizable argument, it is that the USA is in the midst of a social, cultural, and religious watershed. One that today's Americans are not merely living through, but millions have actively lived out in their stories. What he is saying through empirical research is that in our current culture, friends, this secular sea change is impacting us in many ways. Let me suggest a few. I see this, you experience this in many dimensions, very unflattering caricatures, and that's what they are, of Christianity are increasingly common in a cancel culture. Those of us who are committed to follow Jesus, who embrace orthodox Christian faith, who hold to biblical truth in matters of truth, maleness and femaleness, marriage between a man and a woman, sexuality within marriage and the sanctity of life as Jesus did, right, will make both a compromising American church and an increasingly secular society uncomfortable. Not only uncomfortable, often angry and hostile to what we believe and how we live. This is bedrock sociological empirical truth. Now recently I was at a conference uh, where I got to meet and interact and hear a remarkable scholar. He's from Baylor. His name is George Yancey. He's a sociologist. He's a brilliant African-American scholar, and he's the author of a remarkable book called Hostile Environment. Again, I commend this to you. It reflects his compelling research regarding the growing anti-Christian bias, bigotry, and hostility in the academy, the media, and the marketplace. This is done through discrimination laws, health insurance mandates, government agencies, unelected, and free speech restrictions. 
where anti-Christian bias and opposition is increasing in both frequency and intensity. Now, if we understand Jesus' teaching here, right, how do we respond to that, right? Well, growing opposition, even hostility toward our faith, friends, deeply saddens us. It saddens me. But it should not surprise us at all. Jesus told us that this would be the case. And friends, this has been more the normative experience for Christians throughout history. And today, we think of the persecuted church. Many of us were with friends of ours from Iran just a couple weeks ago. Brothers and sisters who are facing the greatest persecution in China and Iran. To not face strong opposition for our faith is the exception in human history, not the norm. Many of us who are older, and I'm one of those, as I've interacted with different generations, I find this true. We've experienced more change in our nation around its increasing secularization and hostility to Christian faith. And the growing secularization of our culture and hostility in the workplace, families, educational institutions, and the public square overwhelm us at times. This is very difficult. And it's painful and grieves us, particularly those of us of an older generation, because we've seen the massive shift before our eyes. But again, this should not surprise any of us, nor should we allow it to discourage, right, us or embitter us to lash out or to adopt an angry victim narrative. Jesus doesn't give a victim narrative to his disciples. There's no victim narrative, woe is me, in the Bible. Our narrative is one of apprenticeship. We are not victims. We are apprentices of the King of Kings, who is Lord of all. And Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And he meant it. Our God is sovereign. His kingdom will triumph. And we pray the Lord's Prayer, don't we? We pray that his kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. And one day it will. But in the meantime... We must not forget we are in the midst of a fierce spiritual battle where two kingdoms are contesting for the love, devotion, affection, and allegiance of our very lives and every facet of society. Our government, our workplaces, our educational institutions, our media, our marriages, our families, our entire common life. This is what the Bible teaches. It is a battle, however... That was won on a cross. But it continues until God draws the curtain in our fallen world. And we are in this time between. We may be opposed. We may be mistreated. We may even be hated. But we are never victims. We are apprentices of Jesus. Who, like the first century, second century, all the way through, take up their cross and follow Jesus. Apprentices that expect opposition, you bet. But also have supernatural help in the midst of that hostility. They may face rejection, persecution. And Jesus reminds us here that we will be hated, but help will be given to us. We will experience supernatural opposition, but also have supernatural empowerment. God's presence will always be with us. And as Jesus apprentices... Jesus' point as the text moves on is that we are never alone. We are never alone. Look at verses 26 through 27. But, notice that contrast, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, 
he will bear witness of me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Now let's recall that Jesus has just told his disciples he's leaving. And they are freaking out, and rightly so. But he says, I will not leave you alone. And Jesus now reintroduces the helper, the Holy Spirit, that he promised earlier in chapter 14. And he will describe more of that next week in the message in chapter 16. Notice the hopefulness here. The Holy Spirit will strengthen followers of Jesus in the face of opposition to be witnesses in the world. Fascinating that the word witness here, we get the English word martyr from. It's martis. And Jesus, I think, in the Greek context and the Hebrew context is giving us a hint of what witness will mean. Not just verbal, but the opposition of witness. Notice in our text also this morning, John lets us see the relational Trinitarian footprints in this text of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus reminds his disciples and all who will follow him, we will be opposed, but we will never be alone. Growing up as a Christian in a church, I remember hearing my parents talk about this phrase, we are called to be in the world, but not of the world. I didn't realize at the time how brilliant and profound theologically that was. And this is what Jesus is saying. As salt and life witnesses, in our Monday lives where we live, work, and play, we are in the world, but not of the world. At Christ Community, we call this calling and posture a faithful presence in the world. What does a faithful presence look like? How do we embrace a faithful presence? Let me suggest three aspects of this for your reflection this morning. Three aspects. First, pursue intimacy. Let's not miss, before Jesus prepares his disciples for these hard words, and they're hard words, for opposition, he invites them first to pursue intimacy with himself. The most important aspect of being a faithful presence in your Monday world, in my Monday world, where I live, work, and play, is to pursue with the greatest passion and intentionality growing intimacy with Jesus. It's very important here to see in John 15 that while pursuing intimacy with Jesus is deeply personal, it's a deeply personal relationship, it is not a solitary endeavor. Jesus is speaking to his individual friends, but he's speaking to them as a collective here. The grammar emphasizes this in the original text. And this should challenge us. Intimacy is pursued, yes, alone, one-on-one -on -one with Jesus, no doubt. That's foundational. But it's pursued in the context of spiritual local church community. We are not only a faithful presence individually where God calls us in our Monday worlds, we are also a faithful presence as a local church in our community, our city, our nation, and our world. And, and I really believe this, believe, believe this, that the closer you are to Jesus, and the closer I am to Jesus, the closer you are to brothers and sisters in Christ, and the closer I am, the less cultural and worldly opposition will discourage you or overwhelm you. We were never created to be alone, nor have we been redeemed to be alone. Our local church is God's primary way to undo our aloneness and for us to flourish in the midst even of rejection 
ridicule, opposition, and even hate. And if you and I are isolated from spiritual community, faithfully following Jesus in the long haul is greatly at risk. On our own, we are simply no match for the unholy trinity of the world, the flesh, and the devil that is arrayed against us. Drawing near to Jesus and to others is vital. Pursue him, number one. But secondly, expect opposition. Apprenticing your life to Jesus is the most incredible journey imaginable of intimacy and joy in this life and for all eternity. But again, you and I will face opposition. Some of the most powerful and painful opposition is rejection by others we deeply care about, we deeply love. It may be a friend that's at your school. It may be a family member, a brother, or sister, or spouse. It may be a colleague at work. And I don't know how best to say this. I wrestled to say it, but the inconvenient truth is this. If you and I want to be liked by everyone, don't become a Christian. Let me unpack a little more what I mean, what I don't mean by that. The Apostle Paul faced great opposition. And he ended up being martyred for his faith. And he put it this way in 2 Timothy 3.12. Hear his words carefully. Indeed, emphatic, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Notice Paul qualifies this. Godly lives in Christ Jesus. We must not miss that. Paul is not describing those who claim to be Christians and act unloving, are prideful, disrespectful, and self-righteous to others. We have way too much of that in our time. Both Jesus and Paul are describing opposition that comes from faithful followers of Jesus who facing persecution graciously Speak the truth in love. Display the fruit of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Followers of Jesus should be opposed for the right things. Not for self-righteous attitudes, hurtful words, or unchristlike behavior in any regard. Opposition takes many forms, right? In the workplace, it can be overlooked for a promotion. I know people that's happening on a regular basis because they're followers of Jesus. At school, we can be ridiculed or ostracized by friends. On social media, we can be befriended and maligned and misrepresented. Who we are and whose we are and the values we hold dear and the timeless truth we proclaim goes against the grain of our increasingly secular culture. Unless, in God's mercy and providence, we see revival or a spiritual awakening. I'm not a prophet, but the empirical research is telling us the cultural road ahead suggests increased opposition to our faith. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who faced this in the 20th century in Nazi Germany, put it this way. He faced it both from the Nazis and the compromising church. Both the non-religious and the religious. He said Jesus never hit his cross to win disciples. 
A part of taking up our cross and following Jesus is the opposition for our faith that, that we will face. Lastly, respond wisely. Responding wisely to opposition is a high stewardship we all have, being a faithful presence in our world. When it comes to obedience to Jesus and the clear teachings of Holy Scripture, there is no place for cultural accommodation, nor is there any place on the other side for retaliation. Let me say that again. When it comes to obedience to Jesus and the clear teachings of Holy Scripture, there is no place for cultural accommodation, nor is there any place for retaliation. But there is a place for wise and respectful advocacy. The Apostle Paul did not demand his rights. Yes, that's right. But he also, in certain cases, appealed to his rights as a Roman citizen. And some of you may be called specifically to this legal and public square advocacy. This is an important work in our time. Advocating for the persecuted church globally? Yes. And advocating for religious, religious freedom for everyone, every faith in our nation. Let's remember, and I say this to myself, as difficult as it may seem, we are called to love others, even those who oppose us. We are called to treat them with respect and one of the things that challenged me most is to pray for them. Let's remember who our ultimate enemy is. And we are in a spiritual battle. Paul tells us that in 2 Corinthians 10 and Ephesians 6. Paul brings the hope of the gospel and the power of the gospel into this worldly conflict, this invisible war. The clashing kingdoms of darkness and light. Listen to Acts 26, 18 as he defines the gospel, the power of it. He says, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who have been sanctified by faith in Jesus. What a remarkable summary of the gospel. Only the gospel of Jesus opens our spiritually blinded eyes to reality as it truly is. Only the good news of the gospel is able to rescue any human being, any fallen creature like me or you from the kingdom of darkness and bring us by his grace into the kingdom of light of his beloved son. Only the gospel has the power to forgive sins and empower us for a life of joyful apprenticeship with Jesus, even in the midst of ridicule, of opposition, hate, and even hostility. So have you in faith and repentance, embrace Jesus and the good news. Last week, I had the joy of having lunch and meeting Kelvin Cochran. Kelvin is an amazing human being, and we were speaking at a conference together in Fort Worth. Over lunch, we had more time to talk about his story. And I don't have time to tell you it all, but as I listened, tears rolled down my eyes. What he and his family faced for simply following Jesus is heartbreaking and sobering. But on the other side, tears of joy also overwhelmed me as he was so filled with joy. There was never a hint of a victim mentality. No hatred or bitterness toward those who had so mistreated him and his family so horribly. 
And with this big smile, as he can do, he's got this great smile, Kelvin does. He looked at me and said, Tom, I lost a great deal. But I gained so much more. That is the great God we serve. And then he said this, our suffering is God's great opportunity. Yes. Opposition, rejection, hostility, even outright persecution for our love for Jesus is never something we seek. But it is often something our loving God allows and draws us to deeper intimacy with himself for the advancement of his kingdom and his ultimate glory. Jesus says loving him, obeying him, will mean many wonderful things, but it will include being hated by others. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to follow you even when we face opposition. May we be humble. May we be loving. May we be faithful. May we be courageous. And may we love those who disagree with us with a Christ-like love. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Allow us to be a faithful presence for your glory. Amen. And amen. Well, this morning I'm delighted to uh, welcome Matt Sogar. For many of you, he's, uh, he's uh, not a stranger. And uh, if you're newer to Christ Community, you know that we are a church for Monday. Come on up, Matt, our dear friend. I guess we get some stools here. Here's a mic for you, bud. Bro. We're bros, so. But we really believe at Christ Community that a primary work of the church is a church at work, that we gather here on Sunday, as beautiful as that is, to encourage one another, but our mission is on Monday, where God calls us, where we live, work, and play. And uh, Matt is one of our wonderful members, and uh, I wanted to ask him a little bit about how God has called you this time tomorrow. So again, welcome Matt and your family. Thank you. I know you had a busy weekend. Thanks for showing up both services this morning. I'm impressed. So, Matt, tell us where God has called you to serve him. Let's have a seat. Yes, this time tomorrow. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you, Tom. I appreciate it. Good morning, everyone. Uh, as Tom said, I'm Matt Sogard. Uh, I have the privilege to serve as the CEO of Overland Park Regional Medical Center during the week. So my Monday job is hanging out at a hospital with lots of people who are committed to healthcare and committed to serving their community. So I have the pleasure of leading a team of about 2,500 people there. Um, trying to be that faithful presence in our community, trying to be, um, you know, in, integral in our hearts and, and have skilled hands to care for our community and lead that team through what is a um, challenging environment, a difficult health care system in our country, and uh, a, a place where we see incredible joys and incredible brokenness and suffering. And so uh, on, on Mondays, that's what I do. Tomorrow at this time, I'm likely sitting in a meeting. Anybody who's read the book, Death by Meeting, will know what I'm <laughs> talking about. Lots of meetings. Uh, but but uh, I would rather be out with our, our team on the front lines getting to support those caregivers who, who so passionately and, and with such commitment care for our community. So that's Yeah, what so that's great. And I had the joy a while back, a little while back, of uh, joining you at your workplace and uh, shadowing you and one of the things we do at Christ Community our staff is workplace visits so thank you for letting me hang out with your uh, your team it was really great so what are like a couple of the joys when you think about where God has you and how you feel his pleasure of serving him on mission on Monday in the healthcare industry what, where do you sense God's pleasure what are the joys yeah um, there's so many joys right I think everybody could use the reminder if you just look around you see all the joys you see so many good things and certainly we see that in healthcare as well um, you just have to remember to look for them 
Um, a couple of that jumped to mind for me. One is I, th I think with people in healthcare, you have so many people who are who are living out a calling, who God made them to be His hands and feet in healthcare, and to watch those people in that spot that he made them for just thriving and impacting lives in incredible ways. It's such a pleasure for me. It's such a joy. I have a unique perspective to be able to see that every single day. And so that's, that's a really neat thing. And then second, um, you know, in the healthcare setting, we do see people who come through these incredible journeys. And one that I really enjoy because we do a lot of it at our hospital is uh, the journey of families when they have premature babies. Mm. Uh, I know that's impacted lots of people, probably some in this room. Um, in this journey for people who have babies who literally could fit in the palm of your hand and weigh less than a pound, and four or five months later, through a modern miracle and God's hands and God's yeah. grace working, those are seven, eight-pound babies who will go on to have incredible lives and be able to impact God's kingdom in incredible ways. And that's, that's such a blessing and such a joy to be able to see things like that happen every single day. That's awesome. So what are a couple of the challenges? I mean, as I'm trying to say, Jesus, the message this morning, Jesus talks about the difficulties sometimes of being opposed, or what, what are just the challenges you face? Uh, maybe a couple of ch big challenges? Yeah, there's, there's, there's plenty out there, right? Um, <laughs> in addition to having a front row seat to the joys, we have a front row seat to the suffering and the hardships and the pain. And certainly everybody gets that from the physical side. Every one of us in this room will have physical breakdown of our bodies, but there's so much hurt and suffering in other ways. The relationship hurts, the social hurts, and they tend to come out in in those high stress situations that we sometimes see in healthcare. So certainly um, that's a challenge. And I think people who work in healthcare are fallen humans just like anybody else. And um, they get tired, they can get jaded, they can be worn down. And certainly the pandemic brought out a lot of that um, where there were a lot of joys particularly on and it got harder mm -hmm. as things went, have, have progressed along. Um, so I think the prayer is endurance. I think the prayer is really endurance to keep fighting the good fight, to not grow weary of doing good, to just just stick in there through the journey. And I think that's the that's the challenge, and that's the prayer that I think we that I want to have for our, our teams in healthcare. Okay, great. And I was going to ask how we can pray for you. So endurance, you, yeah. you did beat me to it. I'd like everyone as we pray for Matt, everyone who's involved with healthcare in any way, would you stand? I'm going to pray for you as well before the benediction. Would you stand, please, if you're involved at all in serving past, present, future in healthcare. Again, we're so grateful for you and how God has called all of us on mission. Okay, so let's remain standing, if you would. I want to just pray. Lord, we thank you for your calling uh, that these wonderful people, apprentices of you, are called on Monday to be your hands and feet of healing. We pray especially for Matt that you give he and his team endurance. Thank you for the light and salt he is uh, in the corporate world where you've called him. May he continue to shine brightly for you. Give him wisdom and endurance um, and strength for what you've called him to as well as his family. And each one who's standing this morning, we thank you for their service to our communities, for the importance of what they do, and may they be Jesus' hands and feet. So, Lord, we commission them as we've commis commissioned a pastor or missionary to the important calling they have. So, Lord, confirm the work of their hands. Yes, Lord, confirm the work of their hands. In Jesus' name, amen.